Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, busy week. Just back from a couple days in uh, Ocean City, Maryland. I was calling residents in Ocean City at what they call the Worcester County Colil. Um, and it's a big treat this week, because I'm going to be doing two, I'm planning anyway, packed week of doing two uh, yard site talks. One is Reb Chaim Brisker, I think it's today or yesterday or something, and you can't let that one go by. That's number one. And number two, a friend of mine asked me to do a uh, yard site podcast about her grandfather. It was a fa- sort of a famous person, not Reb Chaim Brisker, but I uh, hope to get to that maybe tomorrow. So, uh those of you who are interested, you'll have two playbooks this week, if I can provide a, a time and circumstances permit. Uh, also, I mentioned that I'm doing the Baltimore tour on Sunday. And without any further ado, let's get down to business. Because, as I said, this week is the Yard Center of Chaim Salvage, Chaim Brisker. Can't get a bigger name than that. Although I think a lot of people heard about it more than understand uh, who this person was, a very, very interesting person. Uh, and to put some uh, historical flesh and blood on this, uh, because Rechaim was such a great person, and now they're coming out with biographies all the time, at least I see them in the store, and probably they're all, you know, uh, hagiographic and so forth, so you're not sure how to separate the, the wheat from the chaff. Uh, and there's no way I can do justice even in, uh, I'm going to try to keep myself short this time. Last time with Ritzel Pedro went too long and then the thing closed down on me. Uh, so I'll try to keep this as short as, as uh, humanly possible uh, to give you at least uh, a handle, at least as I see it, of Rafael Brisker, who is a historical figure, not just an interesting personality and biography, historical figure in modernity, and I'll try to explain why. First of all, who are we talking about? Those don't know, Rafael Brisker, they call him Chaim Salvechik, uh, was a big rabbi, Rashib, first Rashiva, then a rabbi. Two separate roles, I'll talk about that. Um, in uh, Lithuania, in the uh, second half of the 1800s, early part of the 1900s. So he lived from uh, 1853, and he died in 1918, uh, during World War I. That's not such a long life. That's uh, 66. He was 66 when he died. I'm just saying, he's a great person. He lived to be 80, 90 or something like that. You know, 66 is not so old. And uh, very interesting in many ways. Uh, first of all, he's the son of the father. But he's more than just the son of the father. Sometimes these famous people have the fortune or misfortune that, you know, since the father was the morale, he'll always be known just as the son of morale or the brother of, uh, you know, I mean, They've only gone, he always be known as brother, only gone. It's very interesting. Rechaim Salvechi is the son of, of Yeshua Salvechi, the Beis Alevi. These are two famous names. But nobody says he's the son of this guy or the, or the brother of that guy. He's, he's a big person on his own. Now, what are we talking about? Here's somebody who was born, I think, of Elijah. So his father, Rechaim Salvechi's father, 
was related to the founder of the Yeshiva, Chaim Belazhner. On the other hand, all the Litvish Yeshivas have the problem of uh, family nepotism and who gets to run the show. And I'm talking about even, I don't mean nepotism when they're not worthy. You can have nepotism when you're worthy, you know. But why did this guy, why did this particular genius get picked over that one? Because this one is a son-in-law and so-and-so and such and such. Now, in the case of Olashen, the funny thing goes like this. The founder was Rechaim Olashen, and then he died, and his son took over. See, there you go. And the son died. The son didn't have a son, I think. And so the question was, should it go to the son-in-law, or should it go like to the grandson or something like that? So the son-in-law was the Nitziv, and the grandson or nephew, I think, and I'm not in front of my books, um, is, was Yosheb uh, Salvezik. Everybody I'm talking about is A-plus level, genius, you know, like that, big gonim. And the Vlazhin Yeshiva was the place, the only real Vlazhin Yeshiva of the new sort at that time, at that time. We're talking the 1850s. And so for about 10 years, from 1853, let's say to 1865, if you want to get exact, there were two people that ran the Yeshiva, A and B. And it's okay with me, and truth of the matter is, it's an A-plus team. The Nitziv was big in his way, uh, the Beis Halevi was big in his way. But... Apparently, the politics was such that the question, Miesha Barosh, you know, who's going to be the head one, and probably the students divided into two factions, and their style of learning was different, although that shouldn't be a problem. Actually, in a, in a yeshiva, you have two rebaim whose style of learning is different, I think is a plus, because you can, some people will be attracted to this one, and some people attracted to this one. When I was in there, Israel, in my day, you know, Rabbi Rudin was one type, Rabbi Weinberg was certainly a different type, Rabbi Kalevsky was a different type, Rabbi Dabra Kron was another type, there's all a plus, it's not a minus, but whatever the case is, uh, as I think many are familiar, there was a big fight over who should uh, run the show. And by the time it's over, the Nitziv won. And uh, so he should be the head. Yezhebar Salvechik apparently didn't like that. Now, hear me well. He didn't challenge the ruling. There was like a basin got together, and that's the Paskins. They said, that's it, that's it. But he didn't want to stay there in a position of number two. Even though Nitziv kind of begged him. So here's a boy our hero of today's yard site, Chaim Salvechik, who's born in 1853, the year that Bitzla died, in a, in a world of Mechlokas, so to speak. But it didn't affect him, at least as far as I know. And uh, indeed, so when he's, Mamish 12 years old, I, I, I like to, dates matter, you know, geography and dates matter. Here's Chaim Salvechik, growing up in a house where his father is this, and his, uh, he was also related to Nitzib in some way also. Um, and, uh, you know, and it's, it's the best yeshiva of that time, and he's got the best heads and the best guys, and uh, this is the world he's growing up in, and he's a native-born genius. Reb Chaim Briscoe was, without question, one of these Mozart types, you know, from the age of two or three or four, something like that. He already had extremely a brilliant mind. Uh, there are some people like that. And uh, before his bar mitzvah, you know, 1865, would put him at 12 years old, so his father leaves Volushin, then it seems said, please stay. He said, no, thank you. And uh, he went off to uh, try his hand at the rabbinate. I think first he was in Slutsk, if I remember correctly, at the base of Levy. Uh, and then later on in uh, Brisk, as we know. And uh, that's why they call him Briskarov. So I'm talking about the father now, the base of Levy. So here's this Chaim growing up at the age of 12. By the time he's 13, so the family's already left Volushin. And they went to this slots. These are all towns not so far away from each other. You know, they're all in Belarus and Lithuania. They're not so far from each other. And um, 
uh, say he's bar mitzvah, and then his teenage years. And obviously, he's learning with his father. And like I said before, both are geniuses, so you can just figure out what that is. I saw somewhere, I mean, if this is true, I saw somewhere, and it could be, that for his bar mitzvah, the father said something along the lines, uh, tell, here's a Rambam, you figure out the kasha that I'm thinking of and tell me the terrorists I'm going to come up with. And he did. <laughs> so that's a little bit different than the usual bar mitzvah pshato, you know what I mean? Even if a guy sits there and memorizes a whole dry Torah and all the rest of it, and a whole lumpus and a pilpul, but here's a better one. Go figure out what I would ask, and go figure out what I would say. And <laughs> so automatic, you're dealing with genius range over here. So here's somebody that learns not in the yeshiva. So you hear what I'm saying? Not in Vlash Yeshiva. He learns basically from the time he's 12, which are your yeshiva years. So during his teens, he's learning in the Slot Square with his father, which is just interesting. You know, some of the real geniuses didn't go to yeshiva. And then when he's 20 years old, so after these eight years of learning, you know, by, when I say by himself, obviously, there was a town, there was a base medrash, there were guys learning there, uh, winners and losers, the father is a genius, they probably learned most time with the father. You know, this is the upbringing that we have over here. They say when he was young, mom is young, he was a chavrusa with, who was the rugged shover, I think? Uh, which is kind of interesting. Got <laughs> two geniuses, one of the weird variety, one of the less weird variety, uh, but, and, and the Ruggish being the weird one. And uh, there are many stories in Maisalach about that. I don't know if they're true or not, but uh, i tell you one thing. It's interesting. You look at the Ruggish writings, there's a very similar sometimes, it's business, uh, endless chakiris. I've noticed that. And, you know, definitions and things like this that you see later on in the Rukhain Brisker stuff. So maybe when they were kids, they already worked it out. At least the beginnings of that style. Anyway, so here's Chaim Brisker. So he's, he's not Brisker, he's Chaim Salvechik. And he, when he's 20 years old, he gets married. Now listen closely. He gets married to the, the granddaughter of the Natsiv. Which means that from day one, the Natsiv, even though he won the fight, who should be the head of Belushin, he always wanted the base of Levy there. He wanted the brain power. Uh, the base of Levy did not wish to do that. They say, they say, that he already saw when the base of Levi left, and he had a 12-year-old son, Chaim, and he already saw the guy's off-the-wall genius. He wanted right then and there to say, let's make a shidduch, my granddaughter, with your son, you know, in five or eight years or something like that, and, the, and basically refused. But in the end, it did happen. So what that means is that they're talking about 1873 now. So he's born in 1853, and now I'm talking about when he's 20. It was 1873. Uh, these are the peak years of the Haskalah, I might point out, in Russia. Uh, these are the peak years of the anti-Frum uh, Haskalah, uh, which is just an interesting thing to keep in mind. And um, But then when he's 20 years old, so he marries the Natsiv's uh, granddaughter, the, the daughter of her father, and he moved back to Volozhin. So here's somebody who lived for the first 12, of his, 12 years of his life in Volozhin, then had an eight-year interval, and then came back. When he came back, so uh, I have to get the years right. When he came back, so he's 20 years old. He's Rashiba's grandson. But he's also a super genius. And not only when I say super genius, I don't simply mean in the sense he knows uh, Shas and that sort of thing. But, you know, his, his, already his thinking was uh, very impressive to people. His, he was already becoming a Chaim, you know, the, the, the one who was Mechadish, new ways of analyzing Gemara's and especially Rishonim. And already, 
uh, guys were attracted to him. So here's the politics. There's the Volozhny Yeshiva, the Russian Yeshiva is in its Siv, the number two Russian Yeshiva, the guy who took Basil Levy's place, was in its Siv's son-in-law. Surprise, surprise. But now this Chaim Salvation is the, is the son-in-law of that son-in-law. So he does have an official position teaching Yeshiva. From day one, he's got what we would call today Chaburas. You know, where guys are just attracted, want to talk to them and learning. And it must have been some <laughs> impressive situation there back in the 1870s where just people hock around in, in base medish and outside the base medish in his uh, approaches to learning. And he took Ian to new levels and he thought on kashas for weeks and weeks and talked with guys over. And he also had a magnetic personality. He was the opposite of standoffish. And that's one, one of the interesting things over here. He's a super cheverman all of his life. And I mean that in a good way. And, you know, he would uh, walk around and talk to people, and uh, besides the learning, just to be a, a social and friendly guy. It's just, it's just a remarkable combination. You put it all together, people like really attracted him. And at the age of 30, no, I said it wrong, at the age of 27, his father-in-law took a job as a rabbi in a big community somewhere else, which means that the job for number two was open to him, and he it was given to him. So he's the son-in-law of the son-in-law of the Rosh Hashiva, so now he becomes number two, the second Rosh Hashiva in, in Volozhin. And the Tziva had no problem because his family, okay? Well, not exactly true, because the Tziva had a son of his own, Chaim Berlin. And he wanted him in, but the difference is that Chaim Salvechik was a genius, 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 and a super attractive Hebra guy, a very social type person. And was very beloved by the student body, or large portions of it. And the son of the Tziva was not. So that's uh, you know, the politics at that time, but I'll leave that aside. So now from the age of 27, I mean, just think about what I'm saying. It, everything comes together. He's 27 years old, and at the peak of his powers, uh, he's the Magadshir, the main Magadshir, really, because the city was always running around raising money and things like that. So he gave Shurim, but the day-to-day sort of thing uh, was the Rechaim uh, Salvechik, who uh, everybody liked, number one, and number two, uh, was, uh, you know, just brilliant. So in those, you have the right guy at the right time. And these are considered like the peak years of the Velocity Yeshiva, uh, next 12 years of his life, from the age of 27 to what, to, uh, you know, uh, to 39. So in these years, young man, young man, in these years, he was giving the main shear in Velocity Yeshiva, and, and he attracted a whole bunch of guys to him, elite group. And he was a, seems to have been a natural pedagogue in the sense that, you know, he throw a kash out, have the guys talk it over, then he'll, then he'll critique them. He said, what do you guys think the answer is? And here's what I think the answer is. And, you know, try to work away the superficialities of it until you come up with his way of an, analyzing and analysis and all that. And by the time it's over, you know, they really work through this real well and they feel great about it. They weren't high. So somebody of Rosh Hashiva can do that, obviously, is a, like a fantastic thing. And so a lot of the big people, Rokhaim had a lot of students, that's what I'm trying to say. A lot of big rabbis, next generation, have been students under him in uh, Volazhin. And if it was up to him, he could spend the rest of his life doing this, because after all, it doesn't get better. If that's who you are, it doesn't get better. You're Rosh Hashiva in, in Lamaisa, the Magashir, in the best yeshiva anywhere in Volazhin, with the best guys, the best heads, and all that sort of thing, and uh, you can go on like that till you die, I mean, <laughs> what more do you want, <laughs> okay, that's the type of person, if he won the lottery, 
He just put the money in the bank, whatever, and kept doing exactly what he's doing anyway, because he's doing exactly what he wants to do. However, fate intervened, and it, when he, before he was 40 already, the yeshiva closed down. The Russian government closed down the yeshiva. That's a whole story by itself I won't get into now, even though I could. You know, kind of a, a piece of that story. But uh, anyway, the, for better or worse, the yeshiva was uh, uh, closed down by government rules, order. And not only that, but uh, the, the two Russian yeshivas, the Nitziv, who was an old man, and Rechaim Salvechik, who was a young man, who was in his late 30s, were ordered by the authorities that they have to leave the area. They're not allowed to live, reside, in the provinces near the Velazhny Yeshiva. They have to go somewhere else in the, in the Russian Empire and Pale Settlement. That's what these Mamzerim were. I mean, what were they afraid they're going to do? Start a revolution? You know. But anyway, and so that's how the chief had to go and relocate in Warsaw, where he's buried. And Chaim was with him for a while. I think the Nitziv died after a year from a heartbreak. And then Chaim Salvation, like, what's he going to do? And uh, his... So here's somebody 40 years old. Uh, he has a full life ahead of him. All he knows how to do and all he wants to do is what he was doing. To be a magashir and, and think in the heavy lumdus, uh in new styles of lumdus, which he's famous for. Uh, and that's it. Shifty vase Hashem, call you mechayai. Lach says, no Hashem. You know, what, 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 that, that's it. So what he, the only thing he can do is try to reconstitute the Velazhin Shiva to some degree or another. And so he went around looking at different communities to become a rabbi there, but the real idea is that the rabbi will be a tuffle to the yeshiva. In other words, here's a town. Um, I remember Pinsk was an important center, so he was in negotiations with Pinsk, that they'll bring him in, they know he's a genius, but with the condition, like the old, old days, that they'll agree he can move X number of guys there, and he'll take a lot of the former students from Volozhin and relocate them in Pinsk, which is in southern uh, Belarus. I was there. Uh, northern Ukraine, and uh, things like that, to this town, to this town. By this time, his father, who had been in the rabbi in Slutsk, had fought with the Balabatim because the Salvations were very proud, and they weren't, they considered uh, wrong to kiss up to the rich and the wealthy, and that doesn't get you too far in the rabbinate in those days, and by the time the story's over, you know, he quit on Slutsk, but I'm talking about the Beis Alevi, but then he went, ended up in Brisk, in Breslatovsk, which is another important community. And uh, by this time, you know, Rechaim did not want that position, but his father had it, but the father died suddenly. And at the funeral, they announced, you know, the father just died, we hereby elect the son. Sometimes partisans of one candidate used to do that in Europe. That's how the Sam Sofer's son got elected also. At the funeral, they announced, this is the new rub of the city. And therefore, he found himself uh, in an entirely new role at the age of 40. And this role he spent the rest of his life. So in other words, and he's not a Rashiva anymore. So here's the famous Rechaim Salvechik, who was the Spitz Rosh Hashiva, and the Spitz, which, which gives you the, the Magad Shir, which gives you the total, what's the right word, freedom, not to worry about the rabbinate, not to worry about Paschal Shilas, not to worry about giving speeches for sure, and just learning, because you like to do it, and be ma'ayin in the Shas, and the Rishonim especially, and you know, think it through, the kind of thing that most of us don't have time to do, even if they have inclination, because you have a life, you have a job, you have a carpool, you have this, that, and the other, Dafiomi ain't what I'm talking about at all, guys, not at all, I'm talking about taking some, so yeah, 
and sitting on it till you get it right, that requires a lot of time and space and effort, and a lot of people don't have it. And he had it until then. Uh, but from then on, from 1893, I think, or 1894, when he's 40, 41 years old, to the rest of his life, so let's say he died at 66, spent the next 25 years of his life or so, 26 years, uh, he's a role of a community, which is a different role. And not only a little uh, village, uh, Brisk was a town, you know, thousands of people, I'm Jews I'm talking about. And as 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 it's you know, this the 1890s, early 1900s. So, like all places in the Pale Settlement in Russia, you got your from, you got your unfrom, you got your communists, you got your Bundes, you got your Zionists of every sort. Uh, you know, the from are divided between those who are Mizrahi and those who are anti-Mizrahi. I mean, Russian Empire was an interesting place Judaically in those years. And here's somebody with zero experience in this. That's the biographers who are intelligent notice this. Because, like I said before, until now, his life was just pure learning and lumbness with great guys. And it never did work out for him to set up a yeshiva of his own in Brisk, in the new town. No, he didn't simply pick up a lotion and say, we're making a new yeshiva. Because yeshiva requires a huge amount of uh, administrative effort and things like that. And uh, it didn't happen. Instead, what happened was that he always maintained, like a kibbutz, you know, in other words, I don't know how many X number of really good guys. If you want to really learn uh, hot and heavy, then uh, you come to the brisk if he'll accept you. And uh, it's not a yeshiva exactly, but it's more like a gigantic habura. <laughs> I guess that might be the right word, in which you can hock with these guys. But you realize the head is a rov. And being a rabbi of a community in Russia, uh, of a kehillah, I mean, an, an autonomous, coercive community, well, or whatever was left of that by the time you get to the end of the 19th century, uh, being a rob means you've you, you got to be sitting on top of the dayanim and making sure the kashrus is done right. The chinuch is always a battle, so there's a Talmud Torah committee, and you got to make sure that's being fought, fought correctly. And I don't know, you know, and you got the cemetery stuff to take care of and the, uh, you know, the Stam Kehilla politics and the taxation that the Kehilla does and this and that and the other. Uh, and so being a Rav is like a, a, a very time-consuming, let's put it that way, time-consuming kind of, uh, of a role. And this is what he undertook to do for the rest of his life. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't have time for learning, but it, it, it wasn't what it was. And uh, the thing is like this, but a genius... And a machadish of a and and a machadish of a new way of doing shazam and and Mishonim, he was, and so it's funny and he tried to have both roles. Now speaking historically, uh, it's very very. Uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. So Chaim Salvechik came to be the rabbi in the brisk, but he basically let it be known he's not there to paskin shalos all day long. You have a basin. He brought in a friend of his, or Simpson Zelig Rigger, and you know he he should handle all the regular shots. There, there are many mices like this. I mean, there's a famous story. A lady came with a chicken question, and you know they used to ask you in Europe. You know, you check the chicken. If anything looks funny, show it to Rob. He's got to say it's kosher or not kosher. And an old lady came to him and he's and she says, "I want you to tell me whether the chicken's kosher," which rabbis dealt with all the time in the old country. And he said, "Go ask the guy." And she said, "Oh, this is an easy one. Even you can answer it." You know. So uh, that kind of abundance, he wasn't into. So he wasn't like a Ritzel let's put it that way, you know, of, of the halachic nature. 
He didn't have Shalos and Shubas. Meaning, he didn't publish any, he didn't assemble any, as far as I know. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, there's a very famous story, maybe you've heard it or not, told by, uh, who is it, from Volusia Bezirus, from Mayor Berlin, that there was uh, a certain question about a get, and um, the Diana were divided over whether the get was okay or not, if I remember correctly story. And, you know, since the Diana were arguing over it, they went to Reb Chaim, who's the Rav, the Av Basin, and he said, uh, send, the, send the Shia to Rizal Hanan, who was alive at that time, uh, but just tell him to send back a telegraph, telegram with, you know, one line. It's to get as good or it's not good. Don't explain to me why. Because if you say why, I'm end up upschlugging it, you understand? And I don't want to do that because um, the reason Hanan Spectre is the posek, and, uh, you know, we'll go with his Das Torah. If you want to come down to the Savaras behind it, I might not agree with his uh, argumentation, and therefore I won't be able to uh, agree with his conclusion, and I want to. Uh, let me say this. Um, if you want to understand, uh, I'm speaking now to a broad audience. If you want to understand, you know, somebody like Chaim, the source, there ain't, ain't that many great books that I'm aware of out there. There's now this is new biography of two fat books I saw in the, in the bookstore. Maybe I own one. I, I don't remember. Or maybe I lend it out. You know, they translate in English. There are three places I would send people if they want to familiarize themselves and anything beyond a, a dumb, superficial level. So Chaim Brisker. If you're a yeshiva guy that knows that I learned, you can do your Chedush of Chaim Rambam on your own. You know, good for you. I'm talking about to the mass of people out there. Uh, one is uh, Rav Zemin, who I mentioned before, and he has Ishim Bashitos. And I remember in the Ishim Bashitos, he has an amazing uh, uh, essay on Rav Chaim Salvechik, in which, uh, if you want to get an idea of the style of learning of Rav Chaim, uh, you won't get a better introduction than there, in my humble opinion. Because he has about 20 or 30 or 40 examples of, of Rechaim's Lamdas, uh, the things that many of you have heard about, you know, the Chakiras, uh, the, the, the difference between Achevts and Agavra, between two Dinim, uh, to what, what's, what's our shame, uh, you know, all that sort of thing, and the very subtle and, uh, you know, uh, uh, which I say, fine-tuned reasoning that he brings to all these complex figures, and Rezema can, can, can explain it, but you've got to be able to read Hebrew, I'm sorry about that, no, it's not in English, that's something the York Scroll should do, but it would take a lot of editing, baby. But that would really be a public service. And now maybe I'm fooling myself. Maybe there's not a public out there be interested in it. But I think there is. I think if they ever did Isha Mashitas, even the one of Chaim, uh, because I'm, I'll tell you again, he has one example after another of all of his famous stuff. It's uh, quite remarkable. The single one, uh, the you know, Chomets, uh, you know, whether it's Chepz uh, or or, you know, the thing about Adam uh, Zoberman, you know, in Makas. You know, what's Kasher also, and what's Kasher Zomam, all, all the famous Rukhaims. The uh, uh He gives them in, in, in short paragraph or two, uh, the bullet ways. And I really, uh, so for me to sit here, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to end up, do, I do not want to end up doing what I did last time with Ritzel Petrovic and go over an hour. I'm trying to hold this down. So I'm not going to give examples of uh, the new style of learning of Rukhaim Salavajic, although I'm tempted to. Maybe I'll do a podcast one time with different styles of learning. But meanwhile, let's keep it biographical. Um, and 
if you follow through this, you'll see uh, the, the, the new ways of approaching uh, uh, Shas, especially with Shonen, particularly the Rambam and the Ravid, but not only, uh, that, w- that was considered uh, really new and, and novel and really swept the yeshiva world, the Lithuanian yeshiva world. Uh, but he also describes Chaim as, as, as a, in his role as a posek, or not posek, and he was a posek, but not in the classical sense. He wasn't a halachist, like a reasonable kind of specter. Uh, now, why not? He had the brains for it, obviously. Uh, and the reason is very interesting. Somebody who's a, 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 a machadish, a new thinker, somebody's bringing new approaches to uh, uh, Rishonim and uh, Gemaras, is going to have a problem with the regular halachic system. Because the regular halachic system is based on uh, evolution over many centuries. And you have certain svars that just get out there and uh, are accepted by the uh, postgame down the centuries. Uh, and these svars may or may not make sense to you, the individual, coming at it with a totally fresh approach. And what you'll end up doing is saying, well, I don't care what anybody says. I went through the Gemara and the Roshanim and this is the Din. Not what it says in the Shulchan Aruch, or not what it says in the Shach, or not what it says in, the, I don't know, you know, the, the Ramar or something like that. But rather, this is what it is. Now, to be perfectly honest, that is theoretically the best way to go. So, you, you know, you give it your best shot. You go through the basic sources. I'm talking about the, the Shas and the Rishonim and, uh, and all that. And then you Paskin as you see it. But a firm person doesn't feel comfortable doing that. You're not going to go after centuries of centuries of Minug that this is, you know, the way has been decided over the centuries in Kali Yisrael that this is Paskin on the Get or on the Matzah or on the sukkah, or on the, you know, on the Hilkas Nida, or something like that. So the, the, you, you end up having to say that, uh, you know, what I'm doing is quote-unquote theoretical. Uh, I'm not entering the area of practical halacha. And that's reflected in that story I just said. So Ritzel Khan Inspector may end up posking that this get is good, or, or not, and he'll give me his reasoning. And I know the Ritzel Khan Inspector is coming from the mainline classic mode of Psak Halacha, uh, which is why he was considered the God Ador in, in Psak. And I'm coming from a, my approach, and um, and I'm naturally going to think that my approach is better because I worked it out myself. And I don't want to be somebody who's breaking the, uh, the, the tradition and the consensus. It's really a very interesting uh, thought if you think about it. I hope I haven't uh, spoken too abstractly, uh, but those who understand what I just said will understand what I just said. Um... Anyway, now here's another thing. When he became the rabbi in this town, so what exactly posture do you assume? If it's not a posek, and it's not a Rosh Hashiva, so what exactly is it? Here's, you know, something very fascinating. Rechaim Brisker picked the right way to be a Rav, and that is to be uh, an outstanding personality uh, based on the totality of who he was. Uh, and in order to understand what I'm talking about, Chaim Salvechel, when he became the Rabbi Brisk, became famous in many circles, not simply as the big learner and all that, but uh, he had a gigantic uh, uh, personality and a heart. He didn't care for money. There weren't too many people like that. Uh, when he got married, they gave him, you know, a thousand rubles as a, as a dowry. He gave it away. <laughs> he, said, he said, what do I need it for? I'm, 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 I'm being supported by a father in anyway. Uh, later on, rich people come in, you know, uh, for one reason or another, and give them a big wad. 
in, in an envelope, but he'd give the envelope away without showing to the family. He's the guy they talk about it really happened that, you know, when they gave him the salary, he gave it away to the poor. Uh, his house was open 24-7. That's not an exaggeration on my part. His house was like a Rosh Hashanah It was expected poor people to come in, and they felt at home, and, you know, lie down on the floor and sleep there at night with all the dirt and everything that goes along with that. Businessmen would come and put up <laughs> posters for their business in his living room and in his dining room because the house had rabbis, the house had a community. And he was totally fine with that. A poor person, he would go crazy trying to help the guy. I'm talking about losers. I'm talking about schleppers. I'm talking about almonas. I'm talking about people that usually are rubbed in bother with. You're supposed to have committees that's supposed to deal with these sorts of things. And he became famous as a big tzaddik. You know what I'm saying? Tzaddik in the classic sense of somebody who'll give the shirt off his back or work real, work real hard for you to do so. Now, ordinarily, you say like this. Have somebody who's your gabay tzedakah. You sit and learn because your excellence is in the learning area, which no question it was. It was a genius at that. And yet, that's not how he acted. Uh, if some portional came in and needed some kind of help to get a job or something, he actually went out and worked his head off to try to help the guy. It's, it's like crazy. He became known as Avihai Almanas, Avihai Yisama, Avihai Niam, you know, people like that. And therefore, the people in Brisk in those areas, they didn't talk about him as a big genius or learning because that's out of their league. They have no idea what they're talking about. They would say, you know, he helped my brother, he helped my wife, he helped my kids. Uh, <laughs> people would leave babies on his front step because the kids were either illegitimate or were born out of wedlock. And, you know, this is Eastern Europe, so imagine a girl from a nice family, she got pregnant, it could happen, and what do you do with the baby? And, you know, leave it by the rabbi, and he'll take care of it. And, you know, what is he, a one-man, uh, you know, health, uh, welfare department? The answer is yes. He made himself a one-man welfare department. And there are stories and stories and stories about this, and these stories are true because these stories are told by non-from people. <laughs> yes, it, these are people who didn't like the from kite stuff, but nevertheless said like this, you can't take it away, Chaim Salvechik, is a uh, tzaddik yisod olam. The Hasidim went crazy over him. Uh, you know, there's a there's many stories along these lines, uh, and he, so therefore his smarts, he had to switch from the learning. I don't say he stopped learning, but I'm saying the smarts he had to switch away from learning to become a people person and help people out. Uh, and uh, he became known as a as as a big baltzaraka. Let's put it this way: anybody out there was in in in, in bad shape. Guy lost a job. A guy's looking for a rebbe position. A guy's looking. If you went to Rechaim, uh, you know, in in, in Brisk, and he would really try to. He wouldn't tell anybody. I'm sorry, I can't help, or this, that, and the other. Or go to another rabbi, or or something like that. And he put himself out there. And the stories are legion. I remember I saw some nom from person. I think it was maybe it was Evan. I can't remember. Uh, listen to this. Uh, a lady came in. She said, "I guess I'm expecting in a month. Uh, you know, everybody's turned me away." I'm starving. I don't know what's going to be with the baby, all the rest of it. And he said, to, the story is, Rechaim said to his wife, aren't the women, don't the women have, uh, you know, committees to handle this sort of thing? And uh, because Brisk is a city with uh, a community, a, a Jewish community means you have VODs. You have committees. You know, there's a VOD for Tzadok and a VOD for this and a VOD for that, like we have in America today. You know, we, we in America, we have things called the Chaveirim and the, the, the what do you call it, the, the Shomrim and, the, you know, the this and that and the other, and the Saskim. Whatever. So uh, they had the equivalents of those in Europe. And his wife, the story is that the Rebbe said, Chaim's wife said to him, he says, this is a bummer because, let's put it this way, 
this lady's pregnant and her husband's been away for two years. So knows this child's going to be illegitimate. And Chaim said, that's got nothing to do with anything. You know, it's a human being. We've got to help her out. And the other stuff will sort out later. And I think, if I remember correctly, he put her up in his house and she gave birth there. And they, you know, they, and they brought in nurses and, 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 you know, she stayed there for months or whatever. But crazy stories. You understand? Uh, I'll tell you again. <laughs> I know this. I've seen poor people. So have you. People would come in and say like this. Can I make, can I uh, cook dinner over here? You know, total strangers. Uh, you know what? They have a little bit of food in their uh, pot or something like that. But he's got a fire. <laughs> you know, they can do it. And basically, his house was a hotel. You know, and it was a court. And, and by the way, one room is, is, is where the business is sitting. Another room, he was talking with guys and learning. So it was a unbelievable balagan, uh, and he liked it. And so what it means is he was the servant of the public. And even the non-from couldn't take away from him. They said like this, maybe he's a little too from for us, but this is what the non-from said, maybe he's a little too from for us because from he super was. He was against the Zionists, he was against the Mizrahi. He's the founder, one of the founders of the Agoda, even though the Agoda didn't turn out the way he thought it was. Um, but he may be too from, but on the other hand, you can't take it away. He will give the shirt off his back. He will, you know, drive himself crazy. There's a famous story, how's it go? Some communist Bundes were uh, arrested by the Russian police, or maybe it was the First World War, or something like that. And it's a very famous Misa. And uh, it was Yom Kippur, and they didn't have the money necessary to bribe the Gaim, because of Chaim, you know, there's no, there's no fooling around. You don't appeal to the Russians. You don't uh, you know, call the International Court of, of uh, Human Rights. It's a bribery. That's, what it's, that's how this country runs. And so if people are in trouble. You just have to raise the money to pay off the right person to get them out. Because they gate this. And the story was that it was like Friday, uh, the night of Yom Kippur, and he told the shuls nobody can start davening marv until I say so. And he went from place to place, and he made all these guys. Every he called out every rich guy from every shul and said, "I guess we need this and this amount of money. You're going to give it now." And the guy would say so piously, "You know, oh, it's already untam. I can't give any money." And said, "I'm telling you, don't give me that baloney. Uh, I need this and this amount of money." And um, and he, he raised the money. And this was for Bundes. This was for anti-front people. I'm trying to tell you, you know. No, this was, this was not for uh, saving yeshiva guys or anything like that. A yid is a yid. A Jew is a Jew. And uh, he put it into practice. In addition to So I think if you read, take the trouble, those you can, read Zevin's uh, essay. It's, uh, you'll, you'll see a lot of these sorts of things in there. And uh, I think you'll be impressed. There's another book also. Uh, by Yaakov Mark, the Yiddish guy, Gedolim from Unterzeit, the guy who was in the ocean city of Lithuania, and Polongan actually was in Lipau, and uh, Rav Chaim Salvechik used to go there. Here you see a human being side. I always like the human beings. It's a brilliant essay, but unfortunately, again, it's in Yiddish. Maybe it's been translated to Hebrew. has been translated to Hebrew, the Hebrew is censored. Not that the censorship at all, but I remember the Hebrew is censored. Uh, the Yiddish one is great. Uh, he was in, like I say, the Ocean City, the Atlantic City of uh, Lithuania, and Courland, which is Latvia, actually. And Rechaim used to come there every summer because in those years they had a um, a diagnosis called neurasthenia, which today is considered baloney. And that was that your health problems, uh, a certain type of people like Rechaim, your health issues, and he had health issues, bad liver and this and that and the other, um, stem from uh, overuse of the brain. 
how you're working too hard. And therefore, the uh, therapy is to chill, like for a month, you know. So you have to go and, you know, go to Atlantic City or something like that and just chill, walk on the boardwalk, as we'd say today. Um, and since the doctor said at that time they thought that it really was true, which today isn't, uh, so they took it seriously. So so Chaim used to go to this guy's uh, bungalow, as we would say today, and uh, so they were buddies, buddies, and the guy who writes this, Yaakov Mark, was a from guy, but he was a Mizrahi guy. And so, uh, but he used to buddy up with Chaim, and they would walk for hours on beach or sometimes go swimming together naked, because that's what he did in the 19th century. When he comes out, he couldn't let his mind do absolutely nothing, so they played tic-tac-toe, and they did math games, or... They talked in science and physics and things. It's quite, quite remarkable. And so he got to know him uh, quite well. And uh, that's the human being side. I wish that was translated in English. Maybe, the, I don't believe it is. Now uh, you see the human being side of Chaim, uh, who was a super Heberman. I remember this story. He said, I remember two or three stories offhand. He said that, uh, you know, when Chaim came to the town, so obviously he's going to raise Tzedakah for needy people because people weren't stupid. As soon as you heard he's going to Atlantic City, everybody's going to Atlantic City. All the people want smicha, all the people that want help and find a new steller, all the poor people want an extra buck, all the people looking for money for, a, a, you know, what do you call it, dowry for the daughter, uh, you know, that, that sort of thing. And uh, so they all <laughs> zero in on this town, which gets invaded by the needy, and they all want to see Chaim Brisker. And uh, I remember, so, so this guy who writes this essay... He was like a leader in the community there. And he and a couple of guys would get together and raise money, you know, a couple thousand rubles, whatever, because he knew Rechaim would come and have a, like a tzedakah uh, list. And one year, Rechaim came there and he said, who's in charge of tzedakah? He says, me and this other guy raised the money for you. He said, well, the din is you need three people. So, uh, you know, for, for a vod for a tzedakah, you need three people. So I'll be the third. They said, okay, fine. So he said, now that I'm the third, so Rechaim <laughs> didn't immediately went like this. He wrote out a list of an extra 100 people who need tzedakah. They said, where'd this come from? He said, now I'm a member of the committee, so I'm telling you. And here comes Mr. A. I know him very well. You've got to give him a thousand rubles. A thousand rubles? We ain't got nothing like that. Can't give him anything less. Here's B. Oh, he's in bad shape. He needs 1,500 rubles. Here's C. This is a lady who's got a, a sob story, and I know about it. She needs a face 2,000 rubles. And by the time it's over, they said, you know, we... Raised like five or six thousand, which was a lot of money. By the time finished, by the time you're finished, there's twenty thousand. He said, "Well, tough luck. It's your job to go raise it." So <laughs> they raised the money with great difficulty. But the next year, when he came that summer, they said, "Yes, we already have a committee of three. <laughs> you're not wanted." You know, and he saw you're a bunch of wise guys, which means he was a clever man too. You know, he could he could play ball with them, and uh, in many of these stories, uh, but. Since it's uh, the hours late, I'm going to run into an hour, so I just want to make uh, the following observation, speaking in broad historical terms. <laughs> and then, because uh, to speak about time, you can go on and on, as you, as you can see. I think you get an idea over here. Broad historical terms. Rechaim Brisker was the main intellectual, I would say, of the Lithuanian sheep movement in the second half, starting from the time that he got involved in the 1870s, in particular the 1880s, and his, the new style associated with him of analysis, what's called the Brisker analysis, uh, which I'm sure you can find on the internet, you know, because especially YU guys and all that, they, since probably, Yosha Bear Salvation was a YU analysis, I think they write about it a lot in English. Or you can do the Zevin article, like I told you before. Here's the point. 
this new way of thinking, like, uh, you know, conquered the Ishi world. They said, this is uh, fresh. And what it engendered was a feeling that very similar to what's going on in the secular world in the, in the outside European culture. Uh, the 19th century was a time in which old modes of thinking and analysis were replaced by new. Uh, think of the technological advances of the 19th century. And the beginning of the 19th century was a horse and wagon. By the end of the 19th century, you're almost owned by airplanes. You already had a car, beginning of cars and uh, railroads, of course, steam engines, telegraph. It was a revolutionary way of thinking in every area of endeavor. And it's totally understandable that lots of Jews were drawn to the European culture because this is new, this is correct, and all the old stuff is out the window. You know, it's been, it, it it's, uh, has been, it's been replaced. The yeshivas in Lithuania were able, through the new ways of learning, like like the Brisker style, to um, have the boys, the guys in yeshiva, think that we're, the way we are analyzing Shas and Roshonim is new and sort of displacing and replacing the old. Uh, and without saying it, it's like saying the old is no, is no good, but the new way is, is, is the, uh, is the uh, most advanced form of uh, Torah study, most advanced form of Torah study. Now, whether it is or it isn't, is becomes irrelevant because the subject of reality is more important than anything else. If you feel this way, then you feel that you are in a super advanced, cutting edge uh, uh, institution of learning and part of a group of people that represent an, an advanced guard, an avant guard of new thinking. And that makes you feel uh, super special. And so, if the yeshivas did not engender guys who thought that they're new, they're machadish, they're super, something special, then the yeshivas would have lost all these kids, the best and the brightest anyway, to the European culture, which really was putting out that message and demonstrating it through scientific and technological advance. In, it, it's just fascinating to me that the Lithuanian yeshivas, especially after Abhayim, came to to uh, unconsciously imitate the most advanced form of Western European intellectuality in, in terms of institutions. Uh, the most advanced form is the postgraduate work, especially in Germany, they had these postgraduate institutions, especially in areas of uh, non-science, like let's say, for example, law. Uh, what, 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 what was the highest uh, madrigue there? Pure abstraction, which is Rav Chaim, you know, taking ideas and, and reifying them and bringing out to their conceptual clarity um, new novel forms of analysis, um, trying to, to bring new forms of classification. Uh, many aspects that you find in the German Research Institute, you'll find mutatis mutandis, of course, in the new uh, styles of learning in the yeshivas that came associated with the uh, heroic image of Abraham Salvejic. And like I said before, it, it, it doesn't matter whether you think this is true or not, or the new style is better than the old style, which there's room to discuss. But, you know, putting that aside, if the boys feel this way, then it's a reality. And this is what made the yeshiva sort of like a, a what shall I say, an oasis or an island of um, imperviousness to the blandishments of modern culture. It's, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, you think you got, uh, you know, uh, new ways and uh, intellectual, intellectual elitism 
out there in the universities, we got stuff 10 times better, right? 10 times more advanced, 10 times more difficult to, uh, to understand, and 10 times more abstract. Now, like I said before, that could be boasting, could not be boasting, could be true, not be true. If, if people feel this way, then you create a world of a super elitism, and that's what the Lithuanian uh, was cultivated. A sense of super elitism, they still do. And without that, you wouldn't be able to have kids who say, I'm not going to go to college. You know, without that, you wouldn't have large numbers of kids who say, I want to belong to an alternative culture. Today, um, in the modern world, for various reasons, the year 2019, the yeshivas are now an olam hayeshivas, it's an alternative universe, it's an alternative culture, which is actually quite impressive achievement sociologically in this day and age to sort of turn your back on all the institutions of modernity and create your own. Uh, that's remarkable. In my opinion, a major person, or maybe even the major person uh, in the intellectual sense, in this sociological um, ev- uh, revolution, evolution, the person whose ideas and charisma came to uh, you know, uh, personify uh, and be regarded as the peak, the apotheosis of this whole cultural way of thinking, uh, is Rechaim Salvechik. That's quite a statement. I could go on and on and on, but since I've run way over time, I was afraid I would do that. I'm going to close the shop down now, and hopefully tomorrow I'll get to that other uh, uh, biography, that other yard said. But Chaim Brisky, if you look up, if you take the trouble to do what I told you today, you get um, number one, the Zevin, that shouldn't be hard, the Yishim Bashitis. Unfortunately, you've got to be able to read Hebrew. Number two, you have to get this Yaakov uh, uh, Mark, Gedolim put into side. At least even if you read the censored one in English, I mean, sorry, in Hebrew, I think it's called or some name like that. Uh, that's also very, very worthwhile. That's the human being side of the Rebbe And then there's this book I, saw, I got years ago, I picked it up somewhere called Asufas Rebbe Brisker, I think it's called. Uh, I don't know who it is. It's Roy Moy Nashim. Very little piece of lumbus, very well presented, and usually with some kind of a specific historical background, is it Lefkowitz, Hershkowitz, one of those names, in, in Eretz Yisrael. Uh, I always wondered if there was a second volume. If anybody knows, if there, it's called Asufos Rebchaim Brisker, or something to that effect. I remember Asufot. And uh, if there was a second volume on uh, Kachim and Tyrus, that'd be amazing. You know, Nazik uh, and Kachim and Tyrus. First one was Roy Mai Nashim, I think. Second one was Zidin Kachin Taras. Because Zero Chaim has uh, a lot of things to say, as I think everybody knows. But I'm going over my time anyway, and so with that, I bid you a good day. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.com dot rabbi david